Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to We Earth Radio, and I am truly excited to have a wonderful spiritual teacher here today. Her name is Archera Shunya. She is a spiritual, awake, internationally renowned and awarded spiritual teacher and scholar of non-dual wisdom Advaita, and a classically trained master of yoga and Ayurveda the first female head of her 2,000-year-old Indian spiritual lineage. She has dedicated her life to empowering health and elevating consciousness worldwide. She's the president of the Awakened Self Foundation with its headquarters in Northern California and best-selling author of Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom. Her latest book, which we're going to talk about today, Sovereign Self, Claim your inner joy and freedom with the empowering wisdom of the Vedas, Bhagavad Gita, and Upanishads. It's being claimed by experts as a masterpiece, and I would agree with that, on Eastern psychology and spirituality. Shunya, welcome to We Earth Radio. This is so exciting. I'm truly privileged to be speaking to you, Michael. I feel absolutely the same way, and uh, just... Just want to jump in and share as much as you can of your work with our listeners. Let's talk about the title first, Sovereign Self. What self and what, what does sovereign self mean? Often the word sovereignty nowadays is denoted to uh, liberty. It's denoted to having power. I want to call it sourcing authority within. And when you source authority within, you have to go deep within go beyond the mind that keeps shifting its identity, go beyond the ego that has script and stories and, and be sourced in the true self that is an abiding source of well-being and uh, a joyous dharmic empowerment that well-being includes the well-being of the entire planet. So sovereignty for me is really being anchored in our true being with a capital B. And using that and how to be anchored in that and then using that to then come back and be engaged in the world in a free way, not from emotional bondage, would-haves, could-haves, and should-haves, not from having to feel obliged to live by the scripts handed down to us over generations by society. So sovereignty in conclusion is power of our own senses, our own mind, our own beliefs, and to be able to come in a more harmonious way, in an equanimous way, in an empowered way, in a truly spiritually whole way to be in the world, to live and to give back. Mm, beautiful. You know, I'd love to hear a little about your story and your path to sovereignty in your own self. And maybe you could give us a little background of your journey. 
Yeah, you know, when people meet me and they come to my foundation or to my classes, they, they see this woman who kind of has it together and I've had it together for a long time now to say, yeah, sure. But there was a time, Michael, when I was not anchored in the self. In fact, I was lost in the shadow. And it was kind of ironical because I was born in a renowned family. All my ancestors down to my father are very well known in India, in our part of the world. I was bequeathed. I didn't have to go looking for it. I was bequeathed knowledge, wisdom, which talked about a radical sovereignty, uh, our potential to be and become who we want to become, our ability to transcend petty sorrows and joys, to, to reach a place of more, more eternal contentment and a state of inner serenity and peace. So lo lots of knowledge. And then there was this gap between the knowledge and its activation. I'm sure you've gone through that as a journey in the shamanic, where you have this vision, but you've not reached that vision. But I was fortunate to be given that vision. And then I was very fortunate to be given life circumstances where I was surrounded by, by people who were willing to make sure my gender is diminished, my position in the family is not as dominant or as equitable as it should be. My first marriage fell apart because I wouldn't settle for crumbs and I wouldn't compromise just because it's societally sanctioned to do so. So here I was with all this knowledge. And then the reality was that I was feeling diminished, small, invisible, and doubtful about my own worthiness. And then this beautiful drama unfolds. Like there's a reason why darkness comes into our life because hello, Shunya, you got all this light and don't just let it be words now. Let that let that bring light to your heart. And I use the same knowledge that I share in my book, in my writings, in my courses. And I started living it one day at a time, one conversation at a time, one truth spoken at a time, one silence uh, looked at. Is this silence from, uh, you know, from conditioned submissiveness? Is this silence uh, reeking with my own arrogance and judgment? Or is this silence a silence of my soul now content that it has fought the battles that it need to, and now it can plant a garden that it wants to? This journey from emotional bondage to sovereignty, from darkness to light, from self-doubt to self-acceptance, from hiding my light to a more authentic expression of my being, to marrying again, to raising a child, to having a delightful existence. That's me. And I felt like it was time to write. So I took out three years of my life, along with everything else I do, to present the book that's in your hand today. And the book is Sovereign Self, and it is amazing. I haven't actually quite finished it yet, but I'm devouring each page. It's no small deal to do this in India. You're a woman. No matter what lineage you have, there's a culture. I'd love for you to talk about that and any of the other shadows you actually personally worked with, you know, I had a lot of trauma, a lot of things in my early life and had alcoholism and drugs and all those kinds of things that I went through. But I, I just 
think it's amazing. You're the head of a 2,000-year-old Indian spiritual lineage. I've never heard of anything like that coming out of India. I, I appreciate you asking me that. And I've begun talking more and more about, I'm connecting more and more my journey, my teachings also to my agenda. And in fact, I have a future book coming out called Roar Like a Goddess. <laughs> and it reinterprets the goddess mythology in India from being uh, goddesses who are teaching domestic bliss to goddesses who are teaching revolution and transformation. So originally the Vedas, the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita are gender neutral. And in fact, they are, I would say even pro-feminine. And Vedas are probably the only religious scripture that have been authored by women too. The seers are called rishis, the authors, and there are actual entire chapters and excerpts and, and, and sections and subsections, which are authored by uh, women seers. And, and, and the Vedas have uh, verses which say, women lead the nation, women drive the ship, women lead us in war, women be our spiritual teacher, be like the river and stop not and break the boulders until you reach the ocean. So I come from a legacy of philosophers and thinkers and seers who clearly saw the divine feminine and, uh, you know, worship the divine feminine not only in the goddess realm, but in the human form too. And then they have many feminine deities, a human and animal and plant, which are feminine gender. And because I was came from such a family, I was kind of raised as spirit. Now in, in and that was strange because I grew up not with too much consciousness of being a woman. I was just more conscious of being a glorious light being. And I was climbing mango trees. And I, when I was a young kid, I was, um, you know, deep diving into the river Sarayu, a holy river near my hometown, the holy city of Ayodhya. I was, um, you know, sitting down to study the Vedas and the scriptures when, when I was properly initiated with formality and instruction. And, and, and I was told amongst a whole handful of male candidates that I would be the one to lead this. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I knew that my guru knew, my grandfather knew. And I think a part of me knew that I could handle this. The, the, the shadow, and without the shadow, I couldn't be who I am today because if this was gonna be this fun, peachy story, I think I would have like just become kind of severed from reality. And so that supreme power ensured that I had my own experiences right after my marriage. And I walked into like a, a family of very polite people who didn't hit me or curse me, but they held within themselves the deep unworthiness that I hold just because I'm a woman. Like there was this expectation that I'm a secondary person to my partner just because I'm a woman. And, and if you just went along with it, all was well. There was money, there was status, there was approval. Except that for me, this was the Mahabharata. This was the epical battle between Dharma and non-Dharma. What is true and what is false? What is okay and what's not okay? You know, because I spoke up, I'm still speaking today. 
I didn't lose <laughs> and I hope you don't stop anytime soon. <laughs> I, didn't. I definitely don't. Yeah. I lost I lost the family, but I gained a friend. My my former husband is a friend now. Mm. He understands. I gained friends. Since I became my own friend, I've may have friends everywhere. I occasionally still get a nasty letter. <laughs> And then there was the other shadow of being good looking. There was the other shadow of appreciating a sexual life. There was the other shadow of wanting to be a mom, but not a sacrificing mom, like a mom who could have her own life. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have given my son that permission to have his own life. So I was breaking scripts, not just Indian scripts, but international scripts, <laughs> planetary scripts of being a woman. My shadow has rebirthed me. You Did know what your, I mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. Did your family actually disown you and you still went on? You said... No, my, my personal family is very proud of me. Okay, good, good. My lineage is very proud of me. This was expected of me. And because remember, we come from progressive family, you know. You, you had said, I lost my family. That's oh, uh, the yeah, the the marriage. I lost my marriage. You that, that, the yeah. marriage. Ah, yeah. You know, Shunya, one of the things I think a lot of our listeners, even though they're often spiritually minded, don't know a lot about the Vedas. And I don't know a lot about the Vedas. I know it's the, the oldest spiritual, but who wrote them and how old are they actually? Yeah, we don't know who wrote them because even the authors, the poets, uh, they were called poet, poetsiers, rishis and rishikas. They only say that they channeled this wisdom mm-hmm. and that this wisdom is, there's a Sanskrit word called aparushir. It, it transcends humans, human mind. It has been received by the purest of minds through meditation, prayer, and contemplation. Mm -hmm. And the Vedas are the oldest set of verses. These are ancient verses, several thousand, which are encoded. They were originally orally transmitted. And then at some point, they were encoded in four large texts known as the Samhitas, Rig Veda, Samaveda, Atharvaveda, and Yajurveda. And the beginning part of the Veda is known as Samhita, which speaks about how to lead a conscious life. That includes leading a respectful life, a straightforward life, a nonviolent life, but not a life that is um, weak. And it teaches us how to respect nature. So we come across original teachings of the Vedas, such as nonviolence, ahimsa, you know, vanaspataya hashanti, yoshadaya santi, may there be peace in the forest, may there be peace in the plants, may there be peace in the water, may there be peace in the planets, may there be peace in the galaxy, and may all that peace be mine. So, you know, these original chants were there. Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnat, Purnamudachate, Purnase, Purnamadaya, Purnameva, Vashishate. May there be wholeness. There is infinite wholeness. Wholeness is all there is. So no amount of removal or division in the wholeness can reduce the wholeness because that is the nature of the wholeness. So they were telling us a lot of beautiful things about wholeness, peace, nonviolence, nature. And it gave birth to yoga as we know it today, Ayurveda as we know it today. And the last section of these Samhitas is very pristine philosophy known as Upanishads or Advaita, non-duality. So they are still part of the Vedas, even though we say it separately, Upanishads. 
this is really like you begin with nature, you you go into conscious living known as dharma, and then you end with radical unity, radical understanding of consciousness, that one self that dwells through you and me and all of us. You know, we, we have the luxury of a separate looking face and body and race or outer story and even of separate minds and likes and dislikes. And that happens in state of love or sexual ecstasy. We all recognize we are one. So those teachings are known as Upanishads as the last part. And from Ramdas to, um, from Emerson to Ramdas to Thoreau, um, to great Nobel scientists, um, uh, Nobel Prize winning physicists, uh, poet laureates, they've all, I mentioned about them in, my, in the intro to my book. They have spoken how they went to the Vedas to get insights. And Vedas are very scientific. There was no dogma. There was no religion. The popular Hinduism and the popular deities of Hinduism are not uh, adulated in the Vedas. What is adulated in the Vedas is forces of nature, unity, earth, sun, and the magnificence of a conscious, true life. And knowing your background, the word for healer in the Rig Veda is shaman. And, um, and, the, and the healer was called shaman and the therapy was called shamanic or shaman chikitsa. So the word shaman and the sham, literally the Sanskrit root of the word shaman is sham, which means to bring peace, to bring resolution, to bring calmness to that which is agitated and ill. So these beginning teachings were there. It, it was joked that the Vedas are full of gods, it's not like the Vedic people had too many gods. The Vedas are the original Hindus. They only saw one god, a nameless, formless god. That there are there are verses in the Vedas like, "Look at God shining in the pebble. Look at God shining in the grass. Look at God shining in your eyes. Look at God shining in my eyes." So they saw a sacred universe. And then Bhagavad Gita is one of those special Upanishads. It's like a, it is a quintessential presentation of the highest philosophy of the Vedas. Mm -hmm. And I'm a teacher of the Vedas, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita, or in short, I'm a Vedic teacher. I realize that people know Ayurveda from the Vedas. They know yoga, or rather the physical aspect of yoga, although it's a very big field. Yoga means union with that which is eternal within you. But I'm trying, and I'm sure there are more teachers too, and with the help of teachers like you who are well-known, trying to spread the light of the Veda and inform people that Hinduism is not just a bunch of mystical, superstitious, <laughs> you know, chants and, you know, events. There is a philosophical, conscious, psychologically based approach to leading a full, happy and ultimately sovereign life. One of the words that really captures me in your work and your speaking is the idea of boundlessness, particularly boundless love. What do you mean by boundless? And particularly, we so objectify this thing we call love. Maybe you can speak a little bit to the, the difference between I love potatoes, I love my car, and I love my wife. You know, it's like, wait a minute, what's wrong with this? So can you talk about that issue of boundless and boundless love? When, when love becomes boundless, we extend acceptance to everything and okay. So I love potato, but I'm going to be okay with broccoli. <laughs> I'm not, it's, broccoli loses its power to create aversion within me. 
I love this person, but, or I love this way of being or acting or mating or, or worshiping, but I so am okay and flowing and supportive with other gods, other ways of worshiping, other ways of being, mating and, you know, eating. So love is something that makes us expansive rather than constricted. Love is something that makes us empathetic and ultimately love from a Vedic perspective is that which happens not between two bodies because that's short-lived. It's an aspect of love, not just between two minds because sooner or later we're going to find things that we don't agree with. That's why infatuation often ends in scary ways. But the love that happens for the self, which is same between any two people, between you and a community, between you and the whole world, between you and other humans and you and all beings. And then you find that that same self or that same consciousness even dwells albeit in a sleeping way in rocks and mountains and pebbles. So you become a trustee and a caretaker of this entire existence. You walk calmly and softly so that you don't even hurt what I used to know as child as a grass people. You know, you, uh, you know how that is as a shaman, where you, where you become a loving continuation of existence and not, a, not separate from it. And the moment we, so you can have likes and dislikes, which is called pleasure, where, where in pleasure, I choose someone who can give me sexual pleasure or entertainment or something. And so I like somebody, I have a preference. In my own experience, I'm, I wonder how you chose to ask me that question. Because one of the changes that happened was not that others, I was a victim of others. I was a victim of my own collapsed state of love. I'm the one who was choosing who to love and who not to love. And I wanted to divide up my world into people who voted for me and people who didn't, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And now that I have this state of love, I can even go back to my former in-laws and understand that they are not evil, they're just ignorant. And I can extend a state, a prayer, a smile, a care for even the people who couldn't walk with me all the way and who played different roles. People agreed to wear different masks to remind me of my own light. So this boundless love is the only option really. And once that clicks on, you know, my health improved. I'm aging and my health improved. I feel like my skin has improved. My eyesight has improved. My sleep has improved. My relationships have improved because this is odd because you're aging and things should go the reverse. But as this love becomes more and more boundless, it's the way of being. Mm. It's a sovereign way of being. And I talk about love from that yeah. perspective. It's not in the bondage of likes and dislikes and habits and conditioning and culture and least of all religion and race. I think to actually understand that, we need to have a conversation about what is a self, what is a true self, and what is a little egoic self, and what's the path to merging with, discovering the larger self? Wow, you ask the hard-hitting questions, don't you? <laughs>
<laughs> I like to get to the heart of things. <laughs> mm, you do. I like that. It's nice to sit and converse with people who've been who've been engaged in this thinking for some time. So it's not just superficial. According to the Vedas, and we all know it, we don't even have to know Sanskrit or or even read my book. We all know this, that there is something in us that is separate because we observe the body. Something observes the body, so it can't be the body. The object and subject cannot be the same. Something in you observes your mental states, the fluctuations from anger to hatred to serenity to peace to joy to hope to hopelessness. Something observes your mind, so it cannot be the mind. Something observes the breath. The breath keeps fluctuating. Sometimes it's speeded up, sometimes slowed down, so it cannot be the breath. That which is merely the observer, the knower within you, but not the actor within you, that is the self. And the self is described as Atma, Apunoti Sarvamiti Atma in Sanskrit, which means that which is a boundless awareness within you. And this awareness cannot be circumscribed by the body, even though the body becomes enlivened because of this awareness. This awareness cannot be defined or limited by the mind, even though the mind becomes sparked with imagination, insights, ideas, and abilities due to this awareness. This breath is moving in and out, and it feels like it is the cause of life, but it is the life represented by the awareness that causes for the breath, because and amounts of yogis from India have shown now that they have stopped the breath for minutes, for hours, for days, and they stay alive. These have been experiments validated and verified and reported. And even between each in-breath and out-breath, there is a pause. And in that pause, there is no breath. There is only pure life, pure awareness, and that pure awareness is self. The self is nameless and boundless. This, this self is formless, and yet it is the source of everything that has form and name. It is said in the Bhagavad Gita that this self was present before you took on it took on the body. This self enlivens the body, and this shall this self shall be unharmed and un, un, unreduced and, and in any way unhurt when uh, the body is dropped. The body is dropped by the self, just like we change clothing. The self takes on a new body and at will. Everything is going on for the pleasure of the self. Now, most of us, we wake up and our eyes and our senses look outwards and out we go chasing mirages of that self. That self is supposed to be joyful. So we start looking for happiness. That self is peaceful. So we start looking for peace. That self is abundant, so we start begging and working too hard, almost too hard for money. That self is restful, so we start like, you know, lamenting for a vacation. So we look for the self, not towards where the self is, but in the mirror. And the more we look for it, the more you can see a cheesecake in the mirror and you can try and grab it and you can eat all you want, but it's a virtual experience and we never feel enough. But one moment inwards, one turn inwards, one meditative insight inwards, one peaceful inward movement of consciousness and senses, and we feel renewed. We come to therapists and teachers like you and me, and people come with lifetimes of angst 
and they talk to 10 minutes with Michael and they go, yeah, I'm feeling restored. And Michael just smiles because he knows that all you did was you turned them back towards something inside. And you said, stop chasing your own tail. Look inwards and you shall find something. So this thing is not a no thing. It is a something, except that it's invisible. It enlivens the body and mind, but it's not the body and mind. It is pure bliss. And only particles of that bliss we find in sexual ecstasy or human love or in possessions. What if we were with every breath in touching that? Then everything changes. And I didn't take on a single student till age 40 until I could touch it, until I could touch even some of it and come back renewed. And then everything changed. My vocabulary changed, my language changed, my relationships changed. And then when I started teaching it, my students' lives changed. So we are living in forgetfulness of our true being. And we think we become whatever our mind wants to become. Or we become what our body is feeling, achy, you know, joint pain, or, or sexual and seductive, and that becomes our story. So every day, like after this podcast, you know, this is only a role I'm playing. I'm a soul, not the role. After this podcast, after a busy day writing, teaching, speaking, when I sit down before I go to bed, everything disappears. And I remember through these teachings that I share, and I am that amazing being that doesn't have to be any one thing, a wife, a mom, a teacher, a lineage holder. Everything feels light. Like I'm wearing loose clothes. What a relief. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's so good what you're saying. And Michael knows that he's not the one that does the healing. And I think that a lot of spiritual teachers think that they're doing it. And I want to talk about Advaita and non-dualism and that practice of non-dualism in the real world, not as a concept, but as an actual way of being. Maybe you could give us some background and enlightenment on that area. Yeah, so Advaita in the West has become synonymous with one word called oneness. Mm -hmm. But oneness is a byproduct of an Advaita vision. Advaita means not to. So we come into the world actually in an Advaita state. That is why as babies, nobody is a narcissist, nobody is a racist, nobody is a despot, nobody is anything but that T with a capital, that. Or maybe all words are capitalized, that, self. That's why babies are such magnets. Like, you know, they're lying there in poop and we want to pick them up and like, you know, bury our nose in their stomach because they, they are radiating boundless love. They are radiating uh, no boundaries. And so they remind us of that yearning inside us to return to our original source. Just like if we are sitting in forest or we are sitting under a, a god, goddess tree, like the, the, the one you can see behind me, you, the image here, you, you reminded of something like you left behind. And what we left behind as our brain grew and society's messages grew was, you know, you're different, us and them. And, 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 and even the us and them was not just between communities 
of color, et cetera, or class. But even within the family, there are schisms between mother and father and maternal grandmother and paternal and secrets. And, and so the brain gets conditioned into seeing separation and separation be, breeds suspicion and suspicion breeds more uh, sadness and sadness breeds uh, suffering. And these are just the S words. Now, non-duality is the state of pure love pure okayness, acceptance, and a flow. And non-duality in the Vedas does not mean that I will look at you and everything will become a homogeneous mass of energy. This is all the new age teachings. In fact, the Upanishads are very clear. That's where the non-dual teachings are in the later section of the Vedas. It says, look, as long as you're in the body using this brain and these senses, Till death, you will see separate things. You'll see a tree, a dog, an animal, a human, and that human, and you're separate. But you shall know through wisdom, eyes of wisdom, once you've achieved non-dual instruction, that that's not the reality. Then you shall know that the heart that beats in the tree, the dog, the person who doesn't look like me and me is all the same. We all when we sleep, we all go back to the same self. We all go back home to that one home, to that one place. So it's a cognitive knowing of non-duality while at a sensorial perceptive level, we are still within the realm of duality. And so, so Vedic non-dual teachers don't walk through walls. We don't walk through some kind of a foolish all is one and all is good and all is peaceful. Even though the person is raping me morning and evening, we're all one. We don't go into this kind of false bypassing. It's more like we are one. Even the person who is raping me and hurting me, we share the same self, but the minds are different. So while I'm not going to get permanently bitter, but at a mind level and at a body level, I'm going to have boundaries and clarity. Yeah. So this is very fascinating that I can separate from my um, former partner because that's not acceptable to lead that life. And yet I can extend at a soul level understanding because of my non-dual understanding that we are all one and that we're playing different roles to awaken each other. And yet I was free to take action, affirmative action, towards a life that I thought was more worthy of me. Does mm. that, is, is it? Uh, brilliant. I love what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, let's look <laughs> in there a little deeper, actually. Pretty much, I can't think of any suffering in the world that doesn't come out of this false sense of separation. At the heart of all suffering is separation. Yeah, there is a lot of new age nonsense around the oneness issue. But by one way, it's even more physical in that Shunya's over here in the Bay Area in California, and I'm over here in British Columbia. And that's one way that we can relate. You're out there in the out there world, and I'm over here in this in there world. But in a sense, that's not actually true, because the only way I know you is how you show up in me, in my nervous system. So how do we shift ourselves to recognize that the person that I see over there is actually only discerned by my inner ability to be with them. All of those different, the sinner and the saint and the murderer and the lover are all 
over here, or I wouldn't be able to recognize them. How does that fit into the non-dual perception? It, it fits beautifully. There is a Sanskrit saying in the Vedas, yatha drishta, tratha dish, yatha drishta, tatha drishyam, which literally means, as is the observer, so becomes the observed. So it is the observer who has the power to see, which in modern quantum physics is a much quoted experiment of, do you see the wave or the particle? Mm -hmm. If it, it, it's all upon your subjectivity and it's very true. Do I even exist as a separate entity for Michael? And does Michael even exist? as a separate entity, but because what I'm really seeing is not you, but your image in my, my, my apparatus. I'm a wave in your apparatus. My beliefs, you said it, you said it. Yeah. It's there, but an apparition. Mm -hmm. and, and then it goes to the point of saying, everything is an apparition. And so as you purify your own being, and as you start seeing the truth, only the truth shall show itself to you. So I wait. When I get filled with like this momentary repulsion, I'm like, ah, duality. The bug has bitten me. And then I wait. And I wait. And I, and I would filter my vision until I knew that everything began here and ends here. But it's been a journey. People think I read a book and I just teach from there. <laughs> but it, it brings up another question. I mean, you know, you know how, you know, how if you don't live the journey, it feels like the Vedas are a book and you just read from it. But the Vedas are an invitation to recognize that you are it, the creator, the maintainer, and the destroyer of existence of your own. You are the writer of your story, the actor, the director. And all the other people who show up are really just aberrations for you to reclaim and reown. So talk about mindfulness, thoughts, and grasping, and how we attach ourselves to thoughts, and how can we... I have a, a lovely friend, a woman I dated, actually, who has negative thoughts sometimes, or these thoughts, and she'll say to herself, now that's a thought that's not going to happen. And I love that. <laughs> she actually lives in the Bay Area. But talk about that relationship to thoughts and the impact of thoughts and how we can actually intercede in the mind run amok. The thoughts have been kind of under the limelight for some time in the Vedic yogic field. And so they were like different things the seers suggested, like one seer called Patanjali suggested, let's get into a no thought zone. If there are no thoughts, there are no compulsions, makes sense. And then you just go into the source, which is the self known as Purusha in the yogic terminology. But in the Upanishads, in the Bhagavad Gita, we don't try to be in the, we don't try to make the thoughts still. Instead, we try to use the same thoughts and convert them from unconsciously giving us joy and sorrow unconsciously to being a conscious to becoming conscious creators of sorrow to begin with and unconscious creators freedom and sovereignty and spiritual liberty so you can go from being unconscious with both happiness and sorrow to being conscious 
and then to being designer creators. So in my book, I talk about a five-stage journey. And this comes from my lineage. This is not to be found in any book. It's from my lineage where it describes the clusters of thoughts. So the first cluster of unconscious thought is feeling aggrieved, feeling dissatisfied, feeling resentful, feeling, feeling like a victim of small things. Like say you hit a pebble and you don't like the pebble. Like you feel it's you versus the world, you versus other people, you versus your own partner. So it's a, it's a place of feeling aggrieved. That's one unconscious cluster. Usually that cluster, if the energy builds up, it leads to the other one, which is the cluster of putting the blame out, like putting the energy outwards. So we blame karma or God or some people or the other people who don't look like us and things like that, or the government. And, and I'm not saying that others don't harm us at times intentionally or unintentionally. I'm talking about our own energy and we really invest in that. So there's a lot of finger pointing. So one is kind of pessimistic, the other is a little more positive, but it's outwards and pushing. They are both unconscious cluster. A third, we begin introducing conscious clusters of thought is by beginning to say a, a cluster of thoughts called, is this real? We start investigating. We start looking at, did I imagine this victimhood or is it real? Then there's the next cluster of conscious thoughts, which I call valuable thoughts, which remind you of your own value on the planet. It brings dharma, consciousness, cosmic responsibility, and it helps you see value in another. So nowadays, I never have black and white thinking. I always find something valuable <laughs> in everybody, even if the value is to show us what we should not value. But there is some value in everything. Nothing is random in the universe. And finally, the ultimate conscious cluster is sovereignty revealing thoughts. My entire book is about it, which starts reminding you that you are enough. You are complete. You are your own gift and you have boundless potential. So different traditions have done different things with it. And the more popular tradition with thoughts that became popular from India was let's quieten the thoughts. Let's just quieten it. I, I'm sure you've been through it. You, you can talk about it in your early years of meditation, the sit down and just let the thoughts go. And that's great, but nobody had really taught about, look, just like you have you know, stuff in your nose and, and dirt in your eye, this thought in your head, you don't have to make it go away. You have to train them, design them, align them to reality first, and then connect them to a super reality next. And I started doing that. I teach it. I have a whole chapter on it, on thought management, but it's really thought alignment. When you're part of a lineage, you're part of a chain of traditional teachers. And it's, so it's been in the Indian subcontinent and it's been taught in books in the Sanskrit language. It's just not out there yet. Probably my book is the first one to bring it out, this teaching. You know, Shunya, I come from a background of trauma and I've been doing this kind of work for a lot of years. One of the things that I've been working with a lot lately is the whole area of not just individual trauma, but collective trauma. As you say, our thoughts feed field of cultural field of consciousness and we're fed mm -hmm. by that field. So, but it's very hard for people to 
open up when they have frozen aspects, dissociated, soul loss, parts of ourselves that have been suppressed because our nervous system said at some point, and it wasn't a bad thing, it said, you need to shut down because this is too much. Unfortunately, we don't have rituals and ways of actually bringing back those soul parts for the most part. So talk about how this can help us to deal with both individual and the massive cultural trauma. And when I say that, I'm talking about slavery, genocide, war, climate change, COVID, all the things that are part of the trauma, things that are not complete. So they're traumatizing people constantly. How do we deal with that in a way that we open up to what I call our original goodness? You were talking about babies. You know, St. Augustine pulled a real Catholic number with this original sin thing. But anybody who's ever held a baby, how could you think there's original sin that we're born bad? But we do have parts of us that have been suppressed collectively, ancestrally, individually, familially, all of these ways that we've had parts of us that are very hard, even with a mindfulness practice, to free up the inner capacity, the space. And that was one of the things when you were talking about to integrate these things, we have to have more space, more inner space, at least from my perspective. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I've been living and teaching in America for the last two decades. And something that I have constantly rubbed against is, you know, trauma. And especially because the family systems broke down after the two world wars. So the child, the growing up time of habituation and was not, there was no safety for the child. And now we have created lonely society. Everybody's lonely. That's a trauma. And then there is sexual trauma and all kinds of trauma. So I had to connect the Vedas, which talk about self-actualization and self-realization with this like really broken state of being. And does it even function? And for a while I thought maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. I, re I really did think that for a while that maybe for trauma, you need to go to a therapist, a trauma expert. But then I said, wait, you know, I went through trauma because around the time when my marriage was breaking down and it's not a big deal. Many people have several marriages that break down. But remember, you are as your culture dictates you, even though you think progressive, but you're morphed culturally. And in my culture, in my family, there has been no divorce in 2000 years. <laughs> so it was a new thing. Just around that time, I was losing my sibling after having lost my mother. So my family was falling apart. I was also beginning to experience a genetic flare up of something that, I, that is genetically embedded in me, a condition. And so I was temporarily on a wheelchair. So everything was traumatic. And here I am trauma free. How can I express so a couple of things. One of the words for self in Sanskrit, one of the and one word is atma, which means boundless one. One word is ananda, which means joy, joyful one. These are synonyms for the self. One important synonym for self is avidashi, unbreakable. Now, when we are doing trauma work, it's good to heal and soothe and rock our emotions and feel our pain. And so I and, and the Vedas talk about being authentic. And, and I even had chapters on the importance of anger, importance of grief, importance of guilt, and all those things so that we don't bypass them. But 
if imagine if you had some semblance of something unbroken within you, because without that, we are forever picking up the pieces. So I found some people who came into my um, teaching and my kula, my family, spiritual family, and they had been doing trauma work for years with, and, and, you know, with progress. But they told me that once they came across that no matter how broken you feel right now, there is an unbroken, radically whole, amazingly inner blessed self within you, and it's yours to claim. It helped them. Because they didn't have to go now to a guru, a pastor, a religious teacher. Everything was optional. They had something within them. And then through my meditations and insights, I helped them touch it. And once you touch that through experiential meditation once, which I guide through my practices and my teachings, and even through the reading, you feel it. Then it's no, there's no point of return. You can't go into a river and come out dry. You can't wade into it and come out dry. So knowing this invincible part helps you do the reclamation work. That's one thing. Number two, the sovereignty concept is not bypassing the shadow known as jiva in Sanskrit, but loving it and, and supporting it and seeing why those dark, even that trauma is a trauma, but if you change the languaging around it, as you know, as a healer and a shamanist, you know, language is so important. So when you change the language around it, you realize that divorce was happening to me so that I could marry myself. That loss of my family, my mother, my sister, two of my uncles, my sister, my family got wiped out within like five years. Just one dad alive now. It's like, what's going on here? So that's because I had to deal with the questions of mortality and immortality and I had to become a true healer and I had to give hope to countless people and I had to face the fear of death and come through and find life. Everything was happening for a reason, everything. And when people gave up on me because they said, you know what, you can't even be a good spiritual teacher if you can't keep your match together. I'm like, oh yeah, I am. I am the best spiritual teacher going around today in the 21st century because I'm somebody who can understand people's pain rather than be a celibate, a vegan, a vegetarian and, you know, shave my head. And I'm not, I'm not judging any of that. I might show up with shaved head soon. The point is I'm here in the life, a soccer mom, a divorced mom and the spiritual teacher of thousands. Now, what you gonna do? This is it. So my trauma was my window to my ultimate healing that had to happen. So when this languaging occurs and then the teachings on dharma, how to be straightforward, how to be authentic, because often when we do trauma management, we do a lot of nerve soothing, but we don't have wisdom to reinvent ourselves. How are we going to behave the next time a traumatic trauma giving person comes up? Are we going to speak our truth? Are we going to say no? Are we going to yell for help? Are we going to like walk out of a bad relationship sooner? We, we don't get any of that education in real life. And my book, Sovereign Self, and the entire Veda is really my small, you know, bleep compared to the Vedas, but it's, you know, it's authentic. It's a teaching on how to be. I learned to have conversations with my mother-in-law. You know, otherwise I could have said, I'm just an unlucky person. I get traumatized every time. I walk into first set of marriage, there was trauma. I walk into, because I was being traumatized because I didn't know how to stand up for myself. I learned it through Dharma. 
I learned to find the invincible part of me. So when everybody didn't want to have anything to do with me for a while there, not my immediate family, but my partner who I cared for, and all those things were happening, I could hold me and say, I am whole. And it's just a matter of time and I'm going to find me. And Michael, when I found that wholeness, I could share this wholeness with the whole world because mm-hmm. it's again, unbounded. That's all I can say. Not a trauma teacher per se, but I would say, have a therapist in your life who's good with it. Have a healer, a whisperer, soul whisperer, and have some yogic Vedic wisdom handy. Together, it's going to be wonderful to help you through it. I don't think any one thing, but together, a lot of resources can be pulled together. It's, it's particularly hard. That's why I'm speaking up a lot. Yeah. I can't pretend anymore. I think that's how many of us, why some of, many of us are speaking up. And, and, yeah. and, and yeah. in a way, you know, I consider my trauma, my credentials, not all the books I've read or all the degrees and things like that, but I wouldn't wish my my history on anyone, but I do consider it to be the the credentials to be able to, like you say, really understand, you know, divorce or, you know, whatever happened in your family or these things. I think I'm going to borrow your words for future interviews. Mm. I mean, why would I even want to go to a teacher who's not dealt with trauma in this wounded world and ignorant planet? Mm -hmm. I mean, what am I being what am I being dished? What am I being served then? Like a bunch of let's over and let's chant and let's transcend. I'm going to be scared of that. Well, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing on. Maybe you want to say something about that because that is rampant. Well, I wrote a lot about it in my book. You did. <laughs> and my publishers were very excited that I did. You know, I don't want to be a part of that. So here's a core belief that I have. Everybody is trying. Everybody is trying. It's not like if some teachers are bypassing themselves or helping others bypass, there is a conspiracy going on. It's just that the mind is insidious and it convinces us that we have achieved or realized something when we're just starting out. I mean, like, it's so easy for me to quote a bunch of more Sanskrit and think I'm like walking around with a hello and stop doing the work that I have to do every day with my son who challenges, because who's now grown up. So he challenges the harmony with my current partner where things are harmonious, but that has to be worked at with my students. With my So, you know, it's so convincing to believe in auras and lights and perfumes and bells and deities and channels. And, and, and I am a worshiper of Durga, divine feminine goddess. And I also have had mystical experiences that I have probably reserved for a future book or teaching to share. But I didn't want all my teaching to be about that because then it gives us permission to just imagine ourselves into something versus feeling our pain shedding the tears we need to shed, speaking our truth and kind of becoming naked. It's needed now. It's needed of the teachers today. And when I didn't see that, when I saw a lot of robes and I saw a lot of um, like fancy headgear and fancy markings and, and fancy shopping carts, I felt like it's okay. They do some good. They help people. Maybe I can be the other kind of teacher for the people who are ready to go deeper. 
I think that's a good point too, when they're ready, you know, uh, I've learned to mm-hmm. try to focus my attention on people when they're ready. And there are people yeah. who come and they're just not ready. They're not willing yeah. to be authentic, to be real, to they're more attached and get more value out of the victim place than actually taking responsibility for their life. And that's a big, that's a huge issue is there's something that happens with a teacher where we can co-regulate those traumas and those things like that by just being with someone who's traveled the path. But there's also, if, if we're so committed to our story, because that's the small S that, you know, we talked about the bigger S, but the small self is that story, that narrative, that egoic, this is who I am. And that story only has one purpose and that's its own survival. But if we're caught in that circle, then we're caught until something jars us enough to say, oh, whether it's pain or whether it's intense pleasure or whether it's love, whatever it is that, uh, or just being around someone who isn't trying to change you, but just loves you unconditionally. And that's how I see you as someone who you've written this great book, you've written, you know, you're got two other books coming and another one, but you're just somebody who loves people. And I'm just so grateful that we've had the opportunity to have a little chat and so many more things we could talk about. It's a, a wonderful book, Sovereign Self, Claim Your Inner Joy and Freedom with Empowering Wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita. So honored to have you on the show today. Shunya, and thank you. Thank you for your wonderful work that you're bringing to the world. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, many blessings. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.